This podcast is part of the Paris Fintech Forum Communities Programme and is brought to you with the support of BPI France. You're listening to the Fintech Podcast, the show that goes deep into the stories, the successes and failures that went into creating some of the world's most fantastic fintechs. I'm Elliot Gotkin, and in this episode, how Olivier Jaillot cheated death and failure to reinvent his 200-year-old insurer, Wacam. We ended up uh, giving up. Uh, and we ended up uh, giving the, 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 the source code for free uh, to the clients and shutting down the company. It was, it was a very painful experience. The consequence of that, honestly, was, it was a massive burnout for me. Uh, I got sick, I almost died a couple of times, uh, had to uh, stop having executive functions, uh, I mean, for two to three years to recover. Uh, and this is when I went to INSEAD because I said, I mean, obviously, if I if I went that far into underestimating uh, execution and overestimating strategy, is that I have to reset my own system and I have to I have to reset my leadership uh, skills to 2.0, 3.0. I don't know which version I, I was on at the time. <laughs> Olivier Jaillot, CEO of Wacam, thanks so much for joining me on the FNTech podcast. Well, thank you for welcoming me. Good morning. Uh, how's it going over there? You're in Paris, are you? Yeah, we're in Paris and uh, happy to be back in the offices. <laughs> happy to see uh, all the people around me. Uh, of course, our working habits have changed uh, with the pandemic, but we're, we're happy to have some uh, like uh, human interactions again. Uh, so very happy about that. Great. And so tell me about Wacom. It's a kind of pick and mix in Shortech, as a, as a Brit might describe it, uh, that also builds white label solutions for other companies like Revolut and Deliveroo. How would you describe Wacam? Um, well, in a nutshell, we, we, we turned around the business model six to seven years ago. Um, uh, Wacam is a, is a full stack property and casualty insurer. Uh, it used to be called La Parisienne, which is a very French name. Um, I actually acquired uh, the shell um, of La Parisienne more than 20 years ago. It was uh, it was developed for many years on a pretty traditional model, you know, uh, working with a network of brokers, IC brokers. And uh, six to seven years ago, I mean, basically my vision of how personal lines insurance products would be distributed drastically changed uh, to what now we call embedded insurance. But really, uh, the, the idea was that uh, as the, the economy it was moving from property to usage with all the platforms, uh, it was, for me, unthinkable that uh, insurance would be sold in the same way. You were talking about uh, delivery, but now we are, yeah, in 10 different countries, we insure the rider uh, for like uh, 7, 8, 12 minutes, uh, whatever is the ride uh, to deliver the food. And uh, we uh, insure the rider for his third-party liabilities, personal accident, and everything. So the idea was really to uh, build uh, an insurer that would be capable to build uh, those uh, white label insurance product, very often on demand, uh, very often usage based, uh, that would be embedded into other products and services, and that's what we're doing uh, uh, with a, a pretty extensive digital platforms, and we're doing that all across Europe. Uh, as you say, Le Parisien, a, a very French name. Wacam. I'm, I'm not sure where that's from. Can, 
what, what's the name based on? Or where, how did he come up with that? Well, you know how it works when you, when you work with communication companies. I mean, they come up with 150 names and you have to choose one. So basically, I would say that you choose the one that touches your heart. I mean, and uh, that gives you emotion. And that was the case with Wacam. And to be totally honest, we, we discovered afterwards that uh, it was uh, in Swahili, which I mean, I might agree with you, is not a very common language used by a lot of people on that planet, but it means uh, waking up. So, uh, but it, it's not honestly why we chose it. It was, we needed a name uh, that would correspond to our business model. Uh, uh, again, uh, I mean, we are uh, a white label in digital insurers. We propose all of our products through an API platform that is now consumes millions and millions of times every, every week. And, uh, and more than 60% of our uh, GWP of our turnover is outside France. So it's a very international company. We needed a name that would correspond to our existing business model. Uh, so, but there's no meaning, but actually we love it. So, so now we wear it everywhere, a t-shirt, sweatshirt. <laughs> uh, we have a lot of goodies. We love the names. <laughs> and of course, it's not just the name uh, that's, that's changed um, because I, I know that if I had a euro or a dollar for every time someone says their company kind of predates the word fintech, I'd be a very rich man. But, but Wacam, <laughs> at least in his previous incarnation, I think um, wins hands down on that front because You've been around since, is it 1829? Um, so how, how do we go from, uh, you know, your origins in 1829 to being on a podcast about fintech? How, how did this kind of uh, evolution or revolution happen? Yeah, it, it was actually a pretty slow evolution. Huh? Um, it was, uh, again, you're right. I mean, it was created in 1829 uh, with another uh, very French insurance company that now has disappeared because it's been acquired by uh, AXA. It used to be called Urban, and uh, and um, and the, the Urban was created in 1829 as well to ensure the horse carriage, and the La Parisienne was created alongside with Urban to ensure the glasses of the horse carriage. So you see, we co- we come from very far. Uh, when I acquired it in, in, like I said, like 20 years ago, we developed the company on a very pretty traditional uh, distribution model with the network of brokers. And again, five to six years ago, I decided to um, um, get rid, sounds negative, but uh, decided not to work with the traditional brokers anymore to become that white label B2B2C uh, digital platforms. So that's, uh, I, I would say that La Parisian has had at minimum three lives. Uh, so uh, a very traditional one that was concentrated on the, on the initial uh, uh Objective was with, which was glass breakage. Then when I acquired it, went to uh, full personal lines, property and casualty with traditional brokers, and then moved again uh, to uh, what we're talking about today. So that's how we moved from uh, horse carriage to fintech. In, I wonder again, if you, in two minutes. I wonder if you. I wonder if you had fractional insurance for, for horse carriage journeys as well back then. <laughs> I, w- I wonder, uh, it would be a good idea to look for that. <laughs> so we do have some archives, but I'm not sure we can find that information in the archives. And forgive me, uh, you are CEO, but you said you also acquired uh, the company as well. So you're you're the owner as well, is that? Uh, we, we are two shareholders now uh, in the company, um, uh, two families. Uh, so... Uh, so uh, I'm not the only one, but I'm 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 a, a pretty uh, pretty extensive shareholder in the company. Yes, I am. Uh, so alongside the family office of of a French company, which has a, a couple of billions of assets uh, under management, but it's their own money. 
I mean, when I mean, you, I think you said you started making the changes six to seven years ago. But uh, but mm-hmm. what was it that kind of when it when and how did it dawn on you that this company has to change or it's just going to go the way of the dinosaurs? Uh, it was it was really the transformation of the economy. You know, it was really the time where we we would see the first platforms to appear. You know, uh, we, we people like Uber or Airbnb and everything, and uh, you, you you could. I mean, our vision already at the time that you could see that those guys, I mean, uh, they, they would need like usage-based insurance related to the services they were giving. I mean, you can see now that uh, all the platforms, you can, you, we, we're also the insurer of Gettier, for example, and you can see that if uh, 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 you want to create stickiness to the riders, uh, you know, that are going to deliver either uh, your food or your groceries or anything, I mean, uh, you need to create stickiness with those guys. So you need to protect them. So there's there's always a higher protection, higher need for protection. Uber is the same. So what triggered really the change is that, again, we were moving from owning things. I mean, owning your car, uh, you know, owning your electric bicycle, owning something to renting it. And, uh, for example, I mean, if you take the example of Elon Musk with uh, with uh, with Tesla, I mean, not a very long time ago, he said, well, I, I mean, I don't see how you could sell a car in 10 years that wouldn't be automatically insured. Uh, when Tesla started, I mean, uh, you can see their business model. I mean, none of their cars is sold cash, you know, it's sold through lease or or a rental contract. So it's mainly usage-based because Tesla takes the, back, the car back. So, and again, so you see again that, I mean, you're moving from property to usage in the mobility space, but in tons of other spaces. I mean, now we see people renting jewelry, renting clothes. Uh, and uh, and again, so really what triggered the change is that we needed, the market needed uh, uh, an insurance company that was capable of building those products, attached to those products and services. So that's what triggered the change. Then execution was another <laughs> was another subject because there was a lot of pain points to solve. So, What were the um, toughest pain points to solve? It must have been quite a, quite a, quite a change. Yeah, you know, I mean, the toughest, you know, the toughest I always say is changing people's mentality. Uh, and uh, so, which means basically changing the culture. And I'm going to give you a very simple example. I mean, I mean, insurers, uh, I've always worked with actuaries. Uh, the work of the actuaries is to look at the data from the past to project the future, basically. So what do you do when you have no data from the past? I mean, if you're working with the gate here like this, you know, that are like a scooter delivery groceries, do you have data from the past of people that have done the same job? No. So actuaries are lost. So how do you create products? So you, uh, well, it's, it, Theoretically simple. It's like you create proxies, you know, you build up pricing with AI and you collect data. It's very quick so that you can adjust your pricing by test and learn. That was one of the toughest, uh, for example, uh, change in the company is uh, changing the culture and the mentality of the actuaries and saying you're not going to be working like you've been working for the past 50 years. So that was that was difficult. Uh, clearly, so and and that actually the consequence of that is that you reduce the length of the product life cycle. I mean, uh, creating a product in a in a traditional insurer takes months, if not years. 
with us, it takes less than six weeks. So, and that was a drastic change. And um, and when the pandemic came along, um, mm-hmm. I guess that gave you an additional challenge to kind of work through. Uh, how was it for Wacom? Can I be blunt? <laughs> Please. Uh, we were scared uh, for various reasons. I mean, because, I mean, uh, in the first confinement, I mean, nobody really knew what was going on. So, of course, we, we saw some of our GWP uh, drastically uh, being reduced when you do usage-based insurance on Uber drivers. Well, nobody was driving anymore. So, And it's not that we were billing yearly premiums, so we were not billing anything anymore. Um, so we, uh, as an insurance company, we're full stack care, you know, we, so we have a lot of assets invested in the markets. I mean, nobody knew there was going to be a liquidity crisis or not. So initially, of course, we were scared. Um, working remotely for, for us was easy. Uh, everything is done digitally in the company. You know, we communicate through Slack, Zoom. I mean, our methodology is, is fully digitized. Uh, I mean, our products are distributed through APIs. So uh, some of our parametric products, they're uh, administrated by our policy admin system that is based on the blockchain. So, you know, I mean, really, in terms of operations, I mean, nothing really happened. Uh, we were already working like this. It was just a matter of not seeing your best buddy at the coffee machine in the morning, which is not very nice, but you can handle it. It was just the, uh, but the whole ecosystem made me scared at the, at the time, uh, really. And, uh, and now we see we still, we still, we still have consequences of the crisis. I mean, as you, you probably know, I mean, the, the whole world is, is lacking semiconductors and chips and stuff like this. We are, we are big, you know, uh, insure for electronic goods. So, uh, when, uh, when those electronic goods cannot be sold, well, our embedded insurance is not sold as well. So of course it's it's slowing down our growth, but uh, but at the end of the day we we took some positive uh, you know insights as well from the crisis. And you said you were scared. I guess as a CEO, that's a natural reaction to so much uncertainty and this unprecedented mm-hmm. uh, crisis. But at the same time, as we were just discussing, you're not just the CEO; you are. A very big shareholder. Now, I don't mean you know a lot yep. of CEOs have one or two percent or something. I'm assuming your your ownership is quite significant. That this is your your company effectively that you you share mm-hmm. with another shareholder. Mm-hmm. Was your reaction any different? What was did that make it even more stressful and worrying for you because you had so much more on the line than just the company that you were managing? Honestly, not. I mean, um, um, I think I was I was I was very worried about my people. I mean, I was very worried. It was psychologically extremely difficult for some of them. Uh, I mean, a part of our staff is is very young. So, you know, they're single. Uh, they live in very small premises. Uh, they couldn't go out. They didn't have any backup, no family and everything. Uh, so we put together a, 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 a psychological unit they could call 24-7, uh, we financed uh, anybody that had uh, uh, health issues related to COVID uh, for them or their families and everything. So we really try to reduce anxiety uh, for the people that were working for us. And uh, and uh, and honestly, I mean, it's uh, it's uh, I'm talking in a podcast, so I'm, I'm not going to be uh, like if I was talking to my psychotherapist. But uh, m- m- money doesn't really have uh, any flavor to me. So. Uh, 
it's more uh, building a new uh, business model. So the fact that I was a, a pretty, yeah, like you say, a, a very significant shareholder didn't add up to my stress at all. It was it was more my responsibility to to try to go through that crisis for the people that I've been. Some of them, you know, I've been following following me for twenty years. I mean, my first employee is still with me uh, in the company when I started more than twenty years ago. My assistant is still the same one for the last twenty two years. So it, it was uh, I was I was worried about my people so more than anything else. Okay. Well, um, Olivia, we're going to come back to your story in just a minute because I just need to remind our listeners that this podcast is part of the Paris FinTech Forum Communities Programme for 2021. And in this special pandemic period, you can enjoy throughout the year top-level live sessions with key industry players, exclusive on-demand interviews such as this one, and use our innovative digital networking capabilities to meet your peers, develop your network, create new business opportunities, and continue to build together the future of the fin and tech industry. And you can find out more at www.parisfintechforum.com. Dot com. Um, so is it fair to, I mean, I, I guess it's hard to put the two together or to, to compare them, but uh, was reinventing the business uh, more or less challenging than, than dealing with a pandemic over the past uh, 12 to 18 months? Mm. No, I, I would say the, in, the intensity is not the same. I mean, the, 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 the shock of the pandemic was very sudden, you know, and uh, it's something that was unexpected. Uh, building a new business model and transforming a, a, a company is a marathon. So if you think it's a sprint, you, you're obviously going to fail. And, uh, and, and sometimes that's why I'm, I'm also pretty critical about, I mean, sometimes the media show that uh, in the tech industry, you can succeed in a couple of years and, uh, you know, and everything's going to be simple. Uh, I don't think it's that simple. Uh, so I think transforming a, a company is intellectually fascinating, and uh, but you do have time in front of you because I've chosen to have time. I mean, the, the shareholding structure, like I said, is a family office and myself. It's our own money. We, we, we don't need to give back the money to any investors uh, in three years or five years. Uh, so that gives us a lot of freedom uh, about what we can do with the company. So it's a long journey. So I don't find it very stressful. I mean, I, I mean, the, pandem the pandemic is an unexpected, uh, world event. And, and that's very, that's, that's very different. You have to reinvent ourselves. And actually, we, we, we totally reinvented our working, uh, conditions, uh, after the pandemic, going back to the office. Right. And as, uh, I mean, you've been, I think you've, you've created, set up the company in 2001. Is that right? Um, this company, you mean? Uh, what kind? Well, uh, the Le Parisien, which uh, was the four. Yeah, it was. To, yeah, uh, it was. Yeah, it was. It was acquired in two thousand and one. Absolutely, twenty years ago. Right. Yeah. And um, I mean, obviously, you have a life before that. Uh, you, you, you're you're in France now. You grew up in France. Tell me about uh, kind of uh, earlier part of your uh, of your life. Okay. Uh, well, I actually, uh, so I grew up in Monte Carlo, in the Principality of Monte Carlo. Um, I come from a family uh, of insurance brokers, so that's why uh, you know I I decided to follow that route because after my studies I worked in the family business for four to five years. Then, honestly, I I found much too complex to mix emotions in business, and so I decided to go on my own and not stay in the family business. Uh, so I grew up in Monte Carlo. I I did part of my studies in Lyon, then I did a, a master in economics in Milan. Uh, at the Bocconi University. And then later on in my career, I went to INSEAD as well uh, in, in Fontainebleau. So, so the, the life prior to that is 
might sound a little boring, but I've always been in insurance industry because when I started working at 23, I worked in the tablet business. There was an insurance broker and I never left uh, uh, the insurance industry or it, things, I would say, activities related to the insurance industry because I went in the tech world as well. I did many things, created TPAs, uh, MGAs and everything, but it was always related to the insurance. So, right, and I think at one point, and at one point you were in the US and you, you founded a, another company out there, is that right? Yeah, uh, when when the family office joined as a shareholder and gave me, uh, you know, um, the the capacity to have uh, to develop a long term vision, one thing that we did is that we uh, we we spun off. I mean, one of our activities that was a third party administrator that was handling ancient um, uh, policies and claims. We transformed it into a, a software company. Uh, that was pretty innovative in terms of architecture because it was more than seven years ago and it was already like microservices, APIs, layers and everything. And um, the company was very, very, very successful in the beginning. Uh, we signed... What was it called? Uh, it was called Zags. Uh, uh, one of those names created by a communication company like we were talking about Wacam. <laughs> So it's always good to have high-scoring high, uh, high scoring Scrabble letters, I think, is one of the things. So you've got the W in my you've got the Z in, in Zags. Yeah, I agree with you. We're always good to add to the end of the alphabet. Maybe I have to think about that. <laughs> and uh, and um, so we signed amazing contracts. I mean, we we signed uh, deals with uh, AXA for the healthcare, the replacement of the healthcare system. We signed with AIG. <clears throat> for the replacement of their SME uh, policy and admin system. We signed with Berkshire Hathaway in the U.S. for the replacement of their travel insurance system. So the, well, the, the, so the, the market appetite for the technology that we had developed was, was massive. And um, not to make the story too long, uh, then uh, execution was extremely difficult. Uh, we, uh, we actually... I would say we didn't make the right choices in terms of system integrators. You know that in, I mean, integrating new technologies in large insurance group is always a challenge because they have so many legacies. And um, and again, to make the long story short, I mean, we signed double of our deals fixed price. Uh, we under-evaluated uh, the cost of implementing those things with the system integrator and we started losing a lot of money. When I said, say, losing a lot of money, we, at one point we were losing like, 1.5 million dollars a month wow. and uh and again and again it was our own money with the two families i mean it was not like uh we were not you know it was seven years ago we were not in the ecosystem now that you have around technology and insurtech and stuff like this it's not that we could fund ourselves you know by the external ecosystem and everything so um we uh we ended up uh giving up uh and we ended up uh, giving the the the, the source code for free uh, to the clients and shutting down the company. It was, it was a very painful experience. Um, I had to lay off a lot of people in the U.S. because at the time we headquartered the company in New York, I moved to New York, and I had to lay off a lot of people uh, over there, uh, more than 100. Uh, and um, the consequence of that, honestly, was, it was a massive burnout for me. Uh, I got sick. I almost died a couple of times. Uh, had to uh, stop having executive functions. Uh, I mean, for two to three years to recover. Uh, and this is when I went to INSEAD because I said, I mean, obviously, if I if I went that far 
into underestimating uh, execution and overestimating strategy is that I have to reset my own system and I have to I have to reset my leadership uh, skills to 2.0, 3.0. I don't know which version I, I was on at the time, <laughs> but uh, so uh, I, I did an amazing uh, um, a leadership program at INSEAD that is run by the a psychoanalyst uh, called Manfred Ketteris, who's Dutch and has written like, a, I think, approximately 40 books. I mean, in, about leadership, he, he's a leadership guru he, he teached uh, uh, in the US in major universities and everything. And that was really a turning point into my career. Uh, failing in the US, you know, uh, of course, being scared of for my own uh, uh, health and everything. It was, uh, it was, it made me some, someone very different. And I think it, it, there's a part of that that is uh, the reason of our success uh, to be able to work on. And forgive me, you, you said you, you almost died a couple of times. This was from like stress or kind of, uh, can you share with us what, uh, what happened? Yeah, it was, well, actually I got a virus, but my immune system was actually so low uh, that uh, I got an hepatitis, so which, is, which is pretty common. Uh, well, common. You usually get out of it like uh, with being one month uh, uh, tired. But uh, but the fact that my immune system was extremely low because I'd been working like a maniac, you know, commuting between New York and Paris, trying to save the company, working like eight, 18 hours a day, working over the weekends and everything. My body was just too, you know, uh, was not able to absorb that. And uh, so lost 80% of my liver in six days. So almost passed wow. away and uh and then the recovery was difficult and long and uh and uh but very interesting so so that's basically basically what happened and then then this illness had other physical consequences that were pretty difficult to handle and uh it, it took me two to three years to be fully back on track well it's good to see you uh Looking very well for, I know this is a podcast, so people won't see the video, but I can see that you look uh, fine, fettle. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, obviously, uh, when you speak with other, when I speak with other entrepreneurs on this show, you know, they tell us about the lessons they learned from the failure and how, you know, they wouldn't be the entrepreneur or the business leader they are today without having gone through that. Uh, do you kind mm-hmm. of now look at, on that as a positive almost uh, and, and what you've taken from that and how you've managed to, to make things better for, for where you are now at Wacom? Well, it's it's one thousand percent positive. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, human beings anyway, they have a tendency to forget like bad memories. And uh, so, I think the whole negative part of it. I mean, I think I forgot, and to just keep the positive part of it. Well, the positive part of it is again, it pushed me again to go and do that leadership program. There was really a life changer uh, for me. If I can say a couple of words about that program, I mean, really shortly, it's. It's like a group therapy for one year. You have like 21 CEOs in the same room. Uh, you explain your life stories and your life story becomes a, like a business case for the others. So you, you, you basically uh, make them resonate. You make your peers resonate to your story. And, uh, and, and the end game of, of that kind of program is that, I mean, your level of self-awareness is, I mean, is really, you raise it to the, to the moon. Uh, because uh, you have the perception that you give to others and deep listening also is very much improved because you have to listen to people's story. You have to get into it. You have to work with them. Uh, so so I think if I if hadn't done that, honestly, I don't think I would be the CEO I am today. 
And I don't think I, w- I would have been capable of attracting the talents that I have now in Wacom, the talents that I have in my management, uh, the talents that I have on my board, because also my board is, uh, I think, very impressive for a company of our size. Uh, and I wouldn't be able to, I think, give the what I call subsidiarity, which like uh, really gives like uh, freedom of decision at every level, which actually is, uh, I think, a prerequisite for uh, scaling a company. And also the, the third thing that I would say is that I was giving too much emphasis on strategy and, and not enough emphasis of execution. And I think I've, uh, uh, I've reversed my, uh, uh, you know, uh, my emphasis uh, about that. It's uh, the strategy is extremely important. I mean, the execution is where you win. So you'd recommend failure to uh, all entrepreneurs at least once? <laughs> I recommend failure, but I hope for them that uh, it, it won't, it's not going to be as tough as it was on me, <laughs> you know, physically. Uh, but yes, I do recommend failure. I, I think, you know, but that's the case in the US. It's less the case in Europe because we've, I mean, we've been, I don't know, we grew up with a kind of uh, shame related to failure, which is not the case in the US. Not everything is positive in the U.S., but at least, I mean, uh, when you failed, you become more bankable. And there, I mean, people that are behind you uh, have a strong feeling that you've been through a lot and that uh, it's going to help you for the future. We still have some cultural work to do uh, in Europe about failure. So, yes, I would recommend to fail. But again, I mean, I'm very empathetic to uh, uh, to any human being and I, I, I would never... <laughs> hope for them to suffer as much as I suffered. Sure. And I think also, as well as running and, and part owning uh, Wacam, you're, you're a council member of the Tezos, Tezos Foundation. Mm-hmm. Do you want to tell me mm-hmm. a bit about that? Is that another passion of yours? Sure, sure, sure. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you how it came up. Well, first, I've, I've, I mean, I'm intellectually fascinated by the blockchain movement. You know, I mean, you know that it started in 2008 after the financial crisis and and there was uh, this like uh, intellectual movement around decentralizations and that centralized governments could be a risk for our economies, which which is a vision that I share. Uh, so I was very, uh, I mean, interested in, um, uh, intellectually about that movement. Then uh, we we started working on the on the project at Wacom. You know, we we uh, transfer a big chunk of our risks. We transfer it to uh, reinsurers today. And um, one of our projects is also to securitize uh, digitally some of our risks. And uh, we, we love the blockchain. We're already using it as a policy admin system for our parametric products. I think we have today more than 600,000 policies in our blockchains, which I think makes us like uh, probably the biggest use case in Europe, uh, if not, yeah. Uh, wider than that, and uh, and uh, we 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 started meeting, you know, uh, a lot of these blockchains and a lot of these protocols and assessing those protocols, and I was fascinated by what Tezos had done. I mean, I mean, Tezos was basically the first uh, blockchain uh, of what I call the second generation, which is uh, a proof of stake and not a proof of work. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but um, um so basically. <laughs> Um, I'm going to simplify the, the, the picture, but I mean, we're, we're not killing the planet because I mean, Bitcoin and Ethereum are consuming so much energy that uh, 
uh, I don't think it's sustainable in the long term. And uh, and and Tezos, which has been funded by uh, a French guy, uh, Arthur Bretman, who's I think uh, one of the first um, uh, blockchain of the second, uh, I mean generation, doing proof of stakes where you you need. I think I think the relationship between Ethereum and Tezos in terms of having a, a session on a blockchain is twenty five thousand less energy consumed for the, the same transaction. So, and also, you know, one of the problems of the blockchain is that uh, every time you want to make a change, you have to fork. And uh, and uh, and Tezos is also can be self amended. You have other technical aspects. I'm not going to get too much into it, but uh, we, we're capable of doing formal proof of smart contracts. Anyway, when we met all those guys, I was fascinated with, about what Tezos had done. And uh, and we created a relationship and they asked me to join the yeah, the council uh, as a member of the board. And and it's a, it's a fascinating journey because what, what we're doing is we're, we're trying to evangelize <laughs> our ecosystem to use our technology. And uh, we we don't believe, you know, we're, we're not concentrated on the cryptocurrency. I mean, this is for us. I mean, what is important is what's underneath is uh, is the underlying technology, and we're working hard on it. And uh, the foundation is a nonprofit body. Uh, we're here to give grants uh, to people that uh, have uh, fascinating use cases that that could use our technology. Okay, um, and. Uh, um uh, Olivier, just one final question, which is the same question I ask everyone at the end of these podcasts, and it is this. Uh, what is the weirdest or craziest thing you've ever built or done in your life? In my life or in Wakan? In my life? In your in life. In your life. <laughs> <laughs> my God, I've done so many. <laughs> so, so the weirdest uh, anyway, or the craziest of them all? Any, anyway, I mean... I think uh, it's not that I don't want to answer because I will answer. I will uh, give you some examples. But uh, uh, I think being an entrepreneur requests to be crazy on a daily basis. Uh, every decision you take, you know, is almost like a, a life changer. So, so I think if you're an entrepreneur, you're you're, you're basically born crazy. So, uh, uh, but then I've, I've, I've done many things. Uh, well, when I was younger, I was offshore racing. That's pretty crazy. And uh, then I got scared oh, oh, again. Offshore because, racing, sorry. Yeah, offshore racing, endurance offshore racing on boats. Yeah. Uh, so, and that's pretty crazy. A lot of people died uh, exercising that that sport, and but I loved it. Uh, it, it was it was absolutely amazing. And um, and uh, maybe uh, well. The last crazy thing I done uh, uh, for my uh, uh, um, uh, girlfriend's birthday for her fortieth birthday, I, I shaved my hair behind writing four and zero, <laughs> so as a birthday present. <laughs> this is on your head. This is my, on my head. Yes, right. it is. Okay. <laughs> but I've, 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 I've many things in the middle. But I gave you something when it was pretty young, and something that happened a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> Okay, well, I, I'm happy that you weren't leaving us with a vision of a four and a zero carved into your back, uh, back hair or anything like that. <laughs> so, uh, on that note, uh, Olivier uh, Jaillon, uh, CEO of Wacam, thanks so much uh, for this fascinating conversation and for joining me on the FNTech podcast. Well, thank you for welcoming me. It was a pleasure talking to you and talking to your auditors. Thank you. Take care. 
Seeing a startup you've founded fail must be mentally and, I imagine, financially painful. But having your liver almost fail at the same time clearly must take its physical toll too. That Olivier managed to survive both and then transform in their 200-year-old insurer is surely testament to his tenacity and his entrepreneurial acumen, and perhaps his craziness too. So thank you, Olivier Jaillot, and thank you for listening to the FinTech podcast with me, Elliot Gotkin, now part of the Paris FinTech Forum Communities Programme. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get updates and listen to all previous episodes via the website, www.parisfintechforum.com. If you've got any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can find us on LinkedIn and on Twitter at ParisFinForum or at Elliot Gotkin. That's it from me. Thanks again to BPI France for sponsoring this podcast. We'll be back again next week for more of the best F in tech. Hope you'll join us again then. Bye-bye.